Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Wolford, and this is Trium Connects. We are very far away from the type of genetic enhancement that would produce a super race. That being said, it's also in how we define super race. It's not like there's going to be a singular day when suddenly the synthetic biology switch gets flipped on and now there's anti-aging medications and different therapies. This is like this sort of slow boil. And, And the concern that I've got is that we're just not thinking through how some of these things would impact society. The last thing any of us needs is a biological arms race. And I have concerns that that is exactly the direction that we are headed in. Hello, everybody. Before we start with this episode, I wanted to just say thanks for everybody's patience. I know that we did not drop an episode in July. This was because I became extremely busy in July and I needed a short break. I want to assure those that did contact me to express some concern that perhaps we were no longer uh, going to run any new episodes. This certainly isn't the case. We have plans for many, many more, and I hope you will continue to listen to us. That said, I can't really think of a topic that is more important than the one we start to tackle in this episode. And my guess is that this will be one of many in which we address some of the issues raised in the fields of biotechnology and synthetic biology. The innovations taking place in these fields are probably, and 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 it's tough to overstate this, but I believe that they're probably some of the most important innovations in the history of humankind and perhaps of all of life on Earth. Now, I know, like I said, this is rather a grand claim, but when you start to realize that we're at the beginning of a time when we as humans will be able to program cells and organisms in a way that's not dissimilar to the way we currently program computers, the possibilities, both the promises and the dangers that come to mind, become almost too difficult to really wrap our minds around. The truth is that our technology and understanding of the basic structures of life, augmented by computer simulations driven by AI, are driving breakthrough innovations at an ever-increasing rate. And what will this mean for us all? Well, it could mean a lot of good things. It could mean the end of most diseases and the end of the actual process of aging. It could mean that perhaps the current existential risks of climate change and biodiversity collapse could be removed. We wouldn't have to worry about it. It could also mean that our exposure to the existential risks of, say, bioterrorism grows exponentially. It could also mean a radical new social class structure based on differences in access to and the use of human ability enhancements, and this could generate political upheaval and violence on a scale that we can hardly imagine. What is inarguably true is that the advances in our understanding and ability to manipulate biological systems will disrupt business, governance, culture, geopolitics, all of these things will be disrupted in fundamental ways. And this may not happen this year, and it's unlikely to happen the next year, but make no mistake, my friends. These challenges are coming, and they're coming faster than we realize. Amy Webb, my guest for this episode, believes we desperately need to start these conversations now while we still have some time to shape what the future will hold. Amy's and her co-author Andrew Hessel's book, entitled The Genesis Machine, Our Quest to Rewrite Life in the Age of Synthetic Biology, is really a wonderful guided tour of synthetic biology's past, present, and likely future. It is also a catalyst to a discussion that Amy believes we desperately need to have now. And this discussion is about how we balance the risks and the amazing promises of these innovation. As Amy says, the best way to understand this technology is that it gives us options, optionality. And and these options that we have, we never have had before. Now, how we choose amongst those options is what we need to think about now. Amy is a quantitative futurist and is an adjunct assistant professor at New York University Stern School of Business. Her research focuses on strategic foresight and using data to model probable, plausible, and possible scenarios for the future. She is the CEO and founder of the Future Today Institute, which is a leading strategic foresight and future forecasting firm 
that researches emerging technology on behalf of Fortune 500 and Global 1000 companies, government agencies, and financial institutions around the world. In addition to being a best-selling author of many books, Amy's future forecasting work has been featured in the New York Times, the Harvard Business Review, MIT Sloan Management Review, the Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Wired, Fast Company, CNN, NPR, and many, many more. It was such a pleasure to discuss with Amy the issues she raises in her book, and it is unsurprising to me that so many people and organizations turn to her when they want a view of what our possible futures may be. Her knowledge is deep and her ability to communicate really is exceptional. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And now without any further ado, I bring you my conversation with Amy Webb. Amy Webb, welcome to Triumph Connects. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to jump right into it. You and Andrew Hessel, your co-author, have written a really fascinating book entitled The Genesis Machine, Our Quest to Rewrite Life in the Age of Synthetic Biology. And your stated aim of the book was to encourage discussion on issues which, we'll, we'll, as you say, we'll, we will all be addressing in the relatively near future. And I think that it really succeeds there. And I hope that this conversation today is a small part of that ongoing discussion. I wondered, though, if you could start with this, because it might help some of our listeners just to understand what we're talking about here, if you could help us unpack some of the terms. So what is a genesis machine and how is things like synthetic biology distinct from terms like uh, biotech or other terms we've heard mm-hmm. we're, we're kind of more more familiar with? Sure. Um So let me maybe start with the second half of that question, and it'll make the first part of the question more clear. Great. So synthetic biology is a relatively new field of science that combines existing disciplines like engineering and uh, computer science and biology and genetics into one field whose goal is to research and understand um, you know, how biological processes work in a more fundamental way than we understand right now. And the purpose of this is to redesign organisms, or in some case, design new organisms to have new and improved processes. Um, and I know this is a little challenging to wrap your head around, but the idea is that, you know, cells in our bodies are and outside of our bodies, you know, they're really just like factories. And one idea is that we can unlock the the mysteries of life if we can think in a much more granular way about how life exists, about how it works, um, you know, and how we might be able to intervene in a much more direct way. So that's synthetic biology. Um, How that differs from biotech is a little bit, I think, analogous to how machine learning differs from artificial intelligence. Okay. Um, so artificial intelligence, that term was coined in 1956 at Dartmouth University in the summer when Marvin Minsky and John McCarthy and some other scientists had gotten together for a couple of months to explore, similarly explore these sort of new emerging fields that were starting to converge. It was that summer that the term artificial intelligence was coined, and almost immediately they regretted using that phrase because Minsky later later said that AI was like a suitcase term. You know, you've got a singular suitcase, but you can shove a bunch of different things into it. Right. And depending on whose suitcase it is, different things get shoved in. Gotcha. Already, already within the synthetic biology community, some of that similar dialogue is happening. It's a really strange term. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And uh, people already regret that that's that's what it's called. Um, So within that synthetic biology suitcase, there are lots of related fields. So CRISPR is a technology that's related. Biotech is sort of this broad term that generally relates to, you know, again, engineering biology. So you know, there's a little bit of squishiness in how these things get defined. The way that I think of it is, um, you know, just like AI being a suitcase term, so is synthetic biology. Now, 
who are the people, the processes, the funders, the VCs, the regulators, uh, who are the people involved? Well, that's what we call the Genesis machine. It's actually the title of the book. And the reason for this is we we actually believe that we are on the precipice of, you know, a, a, a really evolving life, all life forms in a different way that than, than has existed in the natural world before. So the constellation of academics and researchers and regulators who are very different depending on the country, funders who have wildly, I think in some cases, inflated expectations for what's on the horizon. Um, th it's this group of people that are collectively making decisions uh, for everybody, for, for right. the futures of life. And that's who we refer to when we talk about the Genesis machine. Oh, okay. So that 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 clears up one of my misunderstandings because I thought at the beginning the Genesis Genesis machine referred to maybe the cell that we were kind of oh. that the cell is the 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 kind of creator. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of meant to be sort of a, a provocative. Um, again, another analogy. I kind of think in in analogies. So part of this was yeah, the, the machinery of life, um, and then the people. You know, machine kind of has this dual. Uh, I don't mean to. Uh, we're like deep in a rabbit hole on linguistics, which I will stop in a moment. But like, <laughs> um, I'm originally from Chicago, and yeah. uh, they talk about the machine, the political machines. So right. that that was meant to be sort of like a dual. Gotcha. Thing. I gotcha. Okay. Well, look, the book gives a kind of guided tour through the history of the evolution of this whole field in the intersections of all these disciplines, and and it really gives us a good view of how we got to where we are now. I have to say it's kind of full of interesting characters and stories and narratives. You guys have done a really great job of bringing that kind of history to life and and importantly for the listeners this is this is not a science book, right? This is not, you know, don't don't open it up and, and expect to kind of be laboring through, you know, uh um biology uh, worksheets or something like this. It's it's a fantastic kind of romp through the history, particularly at first first third of the book and and I really really recommend it. Thank you. And I, I should point out, like, I am I'm a social scientist, but I am very much not a capital S um, hard sciences scientist. Uh, yeah. So it was it was actually a challenge to to write it so that it it was a book about science versus a science book. Yeah. You know? Well, you succeeded because I, I think Thank it's you. it's really, really good in that way. And then you come to a kind of a section kind of where we are now and and you have a uh, a chapter called the biological age and and it's a fascinating chapter kind of again a a list of some a summary maybe of some of the most exciting applications that are kind of being pursued now kind of at the horizon or starting to be worked at and you divide these up primarily into kind of three different areas medicine agriculture and kind of a a collection of things that would help us with climate change or the environment. Um, and again, it's a really great summary of what's on the horizon. I just wondered if all, of all the applications you described there, what are one or two that really you're the most excited about? What are, what are some things that you look at and you go, wow, that's going to be yeah. great. That's going to be really fantastic. Sure. Um, there's actually more fields too. There's food and beverage and like raw materials, which doesn't sound super exciting, but is kind of, very important. Um, I would say only because it's top of mind. Um, so, so there are some, there's a researcher that has developed, uh, using some of the technology we talk about in the book, an artificial membrane that is very similar to the amniotic sac, uh, when a, when a woman is pregnant, but here's what it does. Um, so my husband's an eye doctor and, sometimes when people scratch their eyes are, our eyes are fascinating. Um, they're the only direct portal we have into the, into the brain, really into the head. Um, and, uh, you can tell a lot about somebody's overall health just by going and getting an eye exam, like whether or not you've got early diabetes or diseases or whatever. Anyways, sometimes people scratch their eyes or they have a, you know, an issue on the cornea and it's not like you can put a bandaid you know, on your eye. And for that reason, um, they just, eyes don't heal super fast. So this, this like researcher figured out a way uh, to use uh, stem cells to grow tissue and basically put that tissue over the eye and, um, 
and what it does is it causes your body to generate uh, cells to heal what was torn or scratched. And so that's been, that, that exists now. And if you ever have a problem, you can go to your eye doctor locally and say, Hey, could I get that, uh, that special stuff that heals the eye faster? But the same technology is being applied to wounds. So here's where I think this is super interesting. You know, if you have to go in for surgery right now, the way to stitch you back up is pretty brutal. It's staples or it's stitches and, you know, your body just, it's foreign objects in your body and like, you know, it's going to leave a mark. It's all it's doing is kind of like crimping things back together and hoping for the best. So this same technology gets um, put over whatever the incision point is. And then your, your skin just like magically regenerates itself and there's no mark left behind and, and it happens pretty fast. So that's kind of interesting to me because there's millions of people around the world for whatever reason, they just don't heal their entire clinics just devoted to wound care. Mm. Um, so, so the, the prospect of being able to regenerate tissue, healthy tissue like that, um, I think opens up just this incredible host of opportunities for everybody from burn victims to, yeah. you know, change changes what we know of surgery. Anyhow. So that's kind of awesome. That's cool. And facial, facial surgery would facial surgery. Right. Yeah. I think that's pretty exciting. I'm also very excited about chicken. Um, I, so I don't eat meat uh, most of the time. And um, there's some research right now, and we describe this in the book, in uh, what's called cellular protein. So rather than plant-based protein, this is taking, again, like tissue cells from a living, in a, in a humane way, like a living animal. And if you do this right, it can be a living animal that's never been pumped full of hormones and antibiotics and a bunch of stuff. Putting those cells in what's called a bioreactor, picture just a huge pressure cooker, and uh, putting in the, the amino acids and everything else that would have been present in the mother when when the tissue when the animal was growing, uh, or I guess growing outside of the mother too. At any rate, um, and at the end, you get tissue. Um, th this, what I'm describing, this type of meat is not yet scalable because the economics don't work. The, co the commercial side doesn't quite work yet, but this, this chicken has already gone on sale in Singapore, which meant, and it took two years to pass regulatory and everything else. But we, we now have like a viable product in the market, you know, and I think that's fascinating because it's not like in Singapore, you can. There's a lot of there's not like a, a lot of farmland available in right. Singapore, so it means that a small island nation like Singapore could become totally independent. It would no longer need to import meat from anywhere. Um, right. You could literally grow as much as you needed. It also means that you know some of the climate challenges we're facing, in, and in the United States, a lot of our farms are located in in climate crushed areas. You know, we can bring a lot of that indoors, have more control over variables, uh, cr grow the meat much closer to the to the place where it's going to be consumed. Totally changes supply chain. It changes cold chains. Revolutionary. Um, so for many many reasons, I'm I'm very excited about, um, you know, fermented, uh, cultured meat. Yeah, I, it's 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 funny, Amy, because it's one of the. I grew up in Nebraska, so I I don't know if it's genetic or, <laughs> or something. I, I've always been really interested in in meat production, and and of course, that solves that would solve the huge problems of animal cruelty and and what we you know the yeah. the routine kind of suffering we 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 put onto animals. It the early uh, kind of synthetic meats or or. Um, I know that there was a problem with the amount of energy that would have to go in and water that would have to go in is have have, have we come along on that is it, are we are we is it less energy intensive to do the this kind of uh, this tissue growth now right so the again like it's a different type of energy so right now if you calculate the amount of feed per animal yeah and the way that we grow the feed um and the price per kilocalories, like the actual output, it's still orders of magnitude, much cheaper to, to farm pigs, right, than to do what I'm talking about. But the reality is at some point, you know, I, I'm, as, as you and I are talking, uh, there's a part of the United States uh, that 
everybody's been saying is going to run out of water. So this is the the dry areas, the desert around Las Vegas. Okay. Lake Mead is drying up. It's going to run out of water, water scarcity, water scarcity. Okay. Well, the flip side of that is because it's been so dry, um, people aren't thinking about, oh, well, what happens if there's also like torrential rain that nobody was expecting, right? Um, and which makes sense. There's more energy in the atmosphere, which means we're going to have more catastrophic weather events that maybe we just haven't had historically. My point is Las Vegas is underwater right now. Casinos have completely flooded, many. Um, the airport was underwater. Just like nobody saw that coming. Yeah. I think we're entering this future where we're going to scratch our heads a lot and say, well, huh, that seems like a once in a lifetime, once in a hundred year event. But, but we know that that's improbable. So if it's the case that we are just not able to control as many variables as we had in the past, and by the way, ranching and farming is incredibly challenging. It is a modern miracle that we can, that we have food, I still think. Yeah. Um, but, but these, you know, it, farming hasn't, agriculture hasn't really modernized at all, hasn't truly evolved in 14,000 years. So this represents a very different way of thinking mm. that at the time, at, at the moment is far more resource intensive because we haven't figured out how to scale yet. But the science is there, which means that the scale will at some point follow. And if you have uh, kind of, if you use renewable energy sources that that create some of the, that use some of the electricity, you could, you could have a city, let's say like Singapore, that would have vertical farming and yeah. tissue growth that, that could become self-sufficient in food, theoretically right. anyway. Um, That's right. And, and the, and I guess the hope is that the, the kind of energy in, energy out um, uh, equation will continue to improve through time. That's right. And there's also some geopolitical considerations. I mean, Russia had not yet invaded Ukraine uh, when we were writing the book, but yeah. you know, we one of the things we described was like um, the so many companies have really focused so much on their margins that there's no room it, that supply chains have become super brittle, which yeah. means rather than having a local and global network of suppliers for something like fertilizer, um, you know, a lot of uh, companies are just single sourcing and that creates these points of extreme vulnerability. However, um, to go back to a broad array of sources means complex, adding complexity and raising prices. Yeah. So we have this geopolitical problem right now where you know, all the fertilizers kind of come in from the same place. And um, yeah. that's, that's a problem. So again, and I think this is the overarching really theme of the book is optionality. Hmm. This technology gives us optionality in ways we just have never conceived of before. Yeah. And in some cases, it's going to be a requirement that we have new options. And in other cases, it just gives us sort of a a creative flex, like a new way to think about our plausible futures. Well, that's a great point because it leads me into the next question I wanted to ask you because how this technology moves from here is being pushed by lots of different forces. And many places in the book, you lament the kind of lack of public funding for basic research in this area. And you also document at the same time some of the massive amounts of funding which has come through private sources and continues to come through private investment. And of course, these private investors, they want, at least in the medium term, if not the short term, some payoff, right? They want to monetize their investments or at least the products of their investments. And I just wonder, does this drive the scientists working in the field that are looking for the funding towards kind of marketable, pro marketable products that monetize their funders' investments? And could this create a dynamic, or is it created a dynamic, in your opinion, that pushes developments maybe away from the things which are best for all of us towards kind of optimizing these private investors' profitable returns? Yeah. So um, the short answer is absolutely yes. That concerns me. <laughs> okay. And I think you summarized that beautifully. Look, here's Again, I'll, I'll just go back to AI for a moment, only because we've already seen this story play out. And I think, again, it's very analogous to what could happen in this area. So um, AI, 1956, the term gets gets coined. Uh, not a lot happens, but um, a few years later, there are some interesting movements. Um, there are some interesting developments. There's a researcher who 
makes sort of a very early proto chatbot. Uh, and there's some proof of concept stuff. Uh, Sci-fi is also kind of big at this point. And the, the, between the, the convergence of some key sci-fi writers coming to prominence and the scientists who were at that meeting, um, you know, it was also like the 60s, right? So everybody's very experimental. Um, there were these wild promises made about what AI was going to do and yeah. importantly, when. Now, computers were the sizes of like rooms at that point. One promise that got made was that uh, at the start of the Cold War, right, um, pretty soon uh, computers would be able to translate Russian into English and English into Russian simultaneously, right? Sort of a universal translator. The compute did not exist yet. So that that was that was like technically impossible because <laughs> the resources were not there. So these wild promises got made. Everybody was excited. A lot of these scientists, they were on the cover of Life magazine. They're on television talk shows, you know, and um, this hype cycle begins. And when the promises fail to, and everybody's throwing money in, mostly yeah. government at this point, promises failed to materialize by the 80s we were in what was called the ai winter which basically means funding dried up for everything not just people's startups such as they were in the 80s but like academic programs too my concern with synthetic biology is that we know that some government like china especially that they're they're throwing government money yeah. at this field which has um raised the interest of investors and also the concern of other governments around the world. So that's happening. The private investor community, you know, I mean, there's no easy way to say this, but like a lot of leading investors are kind of up in age. And so they yeah. have sort of a personal interest in especially the longevity parts of this research, you know, the biotech research, and they're very eager to see things happening fast. You know, and this is coming on the heels of, at least in the United States, the federal government having retracted a lot of its funding in basic research and science, not to mention flip-flopping continuously on whether yeah. or not to use stem cells. So this has created this weird atmosphere where suddenly there's just all this excitement and hype and just obscene amounts of money being thrown um, from the private sector at this research. Now, this is basic research. It's going to take time. And as long as everybody's willing to allow that process to happen and not demand products and market, we'll be okay. But again, going back to AI, DeepMind, which is arguably one of the, the best teams working on the hmm. frontiers of artificial intelligence right now, you know, uh, investor, or in, the investor community was getting antsy. Uh, they're a cost center, you know, and... So the parent company, which is Alphabet, has been trying to figure out ways to get them to create marketable products, you know, and it's like, leave these guys alone and just let them do the work. That's kind of what you acquired them for. Yeah. Um, so it is a huge concern. And to your great point about the public good, you know, we've got to make sure bi biology tends to self-sustain. So this is one of these fields where we want to be very, we don't want to stifle innovation. This is a hard one, right? We don't want to stifle innovation. But we also really want to make sure that we're planning thoughtfully um, yeah. what's being researched, by whom, for what purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned AI. One of the things that I, I kept thinking in the back of my head as I was reading the book is there's some parallels also to, I think, the development of the internet and social media. Mm -hmm. Because um, there was all kinds of great promises for social media. And social media has done wonderful things. But there was these massive unintended consequences, I think, that that came through the kind of amplification of messages through the algorithms that that were kind of agnostic about how they amplified the message. They just wanted to amplify it. And they found out that, you know, outrage amplifies message better than almost anything else. So right, right. then you get, you know, it, it contributing to polarization. There's a lot of studies that it shows that it significantly increases the chance of civil war when you have a penetration by social media. So I was thinking, you know, this is this great promise of what the social media can do for us. And then it's only kind of too late that we recognize, my God, what have we done to ourselves? And mm -hmm. is it really so far down the lane that there's no way for us to get back? 
Yeah. And actually I would even add on to what you just said, because I remember in the early days, especially of Twitter, um, that it was uh, deemed as frivolous. So I, I remember yeah. for those of you who are based in the United States listening to us and might've been listening to national public radio NPR um, in the, let's say 2010 to 2000, probably 12 range. A lot of those morning anchors were being forced to say, follow us on Twitter or whatever. And they were <laughs> making fun of it. You know, they, they yeah. were um, like, they were, they were making fun of it and, and people didn't take these things seriously. Well, in not taking them seriously, not only are you missing out on potential opportunity when it comes to business and whatever else, you're also not looking at risk. Yeah. And nobody, nobody um, was really looking at plausible risk. This ties back into synthetic biology because um, what most of the public is familiar with are things like plant-based, things that sound kind of silly and frivolous, right? Hmm burgers made out of, you know, plants or, um, you know, beer that grow that glows green or whatever. It, yeah. it seems frivolous. It seems silly. And the problem is that we, we don't have a public dialogue on risk. And, yeah. and by the way, the risk isn't just, Hey, if we tinker with biology, here's what could happen. It's also, Hey, if we don't tinker with biology and we know other nations that have different ideas on what the future ought to look like, meaning China, are what risk does that you know create? Yeah, exactly, and I and I think those are some of the more interesting questions. And and I'm just gonna again, it's it's a it's a great transition to what I want to talk about next. And you were mentioning AI, and I, I think a, another analogy with AI that I think is really interesting. Of course, there's a lot of people that write about the existential risk of a general intelligent AI, et cetera. And there's usually this idea, if you talk to the experts in the field, they'll say, oh, it's so far away from yeah. where we are now, you don't have to worry about it. But in a sense, it doesn't matter whether it's five years or 50 years or 100 years, it's still an existential risk if you start going down that road, unless there's some kind of logical way that it would stop uh, right. development at a certain point. And I kind of think of synthetic biology in, in the same way. And you you write, for example, in the book that synthetic biology has a singular goal, and that's to gain access to cells in order to write new and possibly better biological code. And the Genesis, Genesis machine will power humanity's great transformation, which is already underway. Soon life will no longer be a game of chance, but the result of design, selection, and choice. And I wrote that when I re read that, it's relatively early in the book, and it really struck me. And I started thinking, look, if you go from a game of chance to one that's not chance, that's not random. So right now we kind of random allocation of, of all kinds of different things. Some are good, some are bad. If you introduce choice, that requires kind of a motivation for choice. We want to, we want, we 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 want to change it in some way, and that requires kind of preferences over outcomes. I know this is a little bit long to get to, but. But preferences require kind of values and morals and normative frameworks, and people really aren't in agreement about any of that stuff. So in some cases, better is clear. Like we can say, it's good that people don't have genetic diseases, right? It's good that people don't die from this. It's good that people who don't have children can have children. It's good that all, all of those, there's a lot of things that are kind of unambiguously good. But then there's a lot of stuff that then starts to get into to things that are are, are clearly value driven. So let's say, for example, and this is kind of a, a new brave new world, right? Let's say that we could create sterile, perpetually happy, relatively unintelligent, serenely content humans that would serve their genetic superiors, mm -hmm. right? And I know this isn't anything medium term, but let's, if we go down this road, maybe we get to there. Mm -hmm. And I use it just as an example, because no matter what anyone did to them, you could inflict suffering, they remain happy and content with their life. The question then becomes, should we do this? Mm -hmm. And if we decide not to, why not? Mm -hmm. Could, would, would one country, as you said, geopolitically, would we go to war to prevent these beings from being created? Mm -hmm. Would we would we go to resorts and be waited on by these people? Um, and, and again, what what would this do to our sense of human rights? So in general, I guess the general question is, how should we decide or how will we decide? And what do we mean by we? 
in that. So it's not only how and what we should decide or how we should decide, but who should decide. And, and those are just huge questions in my mind that yeah. I, 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 I don't really have a question here. I just wanted to have, hear your reflections. Yeah. Uh, well, I really appreciated hearing your reflections because you added a new contour to what I had been thinking about, which is, you know, what happens if we create this super race and what your super race of people and what you're asking, which I think is very clever, is what happens if we create a um, lesser race, right, mm. in terms of achievement, which I think is a very provocative and interesting framing. Um, let me th let me unpack a few things in what you just said, because, I, again, I think the reflection was terrific. Um you, we started with chance versus choice and I'm going to just go back to Vegas for a moment. Yeah. You know, there are the people who are content sitting at slot machines, which are the highest margin and, and the, the best revenue drivers for most casinos anyways. But most people are content to sit at a slot machine, which is a hundred percent, uh, chance, right? You have yeah. no control over what's coming next. So you are sitting there and your odds are the worst in the casino. You mean you how, how you pull the thing doesn't make a difference? Really? You're not even pulling it anymore. You're basically oh, pushing. You're pushing a button. Um, your odds are the worst. And a lot of people are are content. I, I don't understand why, but a lot of people really enjoy playing slot machines. They will sit there all day long and or for however long, and, and that's how they are. <clears throat> you know, but there there are other games where choice plays a critical role in in the outcome. And that's gonna be, you know, craps, which is a game that I like to play. Uh, and you know, blackjack and anyhow, I just bring this up by saying at this point, e even if you're very, even if it was the old days and you could still count cards playing blackjack, there's always going to be elements of chance. Hmm. So there is no, there's nothing that can be truly controlled for when you have, um, any type of randomness or any type of other variable. So if we're thinking about life. Um, it would be challenging to control every single possible variable because the numbers are so exponential. Uh, one of the, the most prominent scientists in the field is Craig Ventner, and he is he and his team are working on sort of a minimum viable gene. Basically, yeah. how what minimum viable genome? What is the absolute smallest organism um, that is still alive? you know, that could be created. And they're, they're not doing this as like a dog and pony show. They're doing it to, to really figure out the absolute fundamental building blocks of mm. sustainable life forms that can reproduce. Um, so anyhow, I think this is just really important because I think some people, you know, believe that um, we're talking about absolute control over life and it's, it's highly improbable that we're going to get to that point. Um, you know, now who should be deciding and what should we be making? That's actually the, the harder question and it does parallel AI. And I, we're, I'm talking a lot about AI, my previous book and the other field that I research is artificial intelligence. Um, so that's where some of this is coming from, but I, I see the two fields as in, inextricably linked that that's a harder question. Um, you know, in AI, the ethicists, that there were people thinking about the outcomes of AI thinking machines, but none of those people were in the room when business decisions were being made. Right. And um, I think what I see in synthetic biology, again, is it has a longer history and tradition of, of ethics, ha having people talk about ethics and morals. There was a pretty famous conference that happened 40 years ago where some of this was discussed. So there's, there's definitely a tradition there. I think the bigger problem has to do with regulations, rules. Um, mm. We just don't have a collective agreed upon framework. So if China is currently experimenting, and I personally believe that this is happening, to see if they can tweak um, human performance and enhancement a little bit, they're not violating that I know of any international treatise or treat, you know, I mean, so, so it, the, the problem is that we're all, you know, we are currently all living on a singular planet. 
um, where life can move around. Yeah. So I think that's the bigger problem is we, we just don't have this alignment and I don't know how to resolve that other than having these public dialogues and, and making sure that they stay current with the technological and scientific developments so that we're not trying to make decisions after the fact. Yeah. To be honest, I mean, we have almost no history of success in trying to do this, even yeah. with, for example, nuclear weapons, which are, yep. which are, I mean, we kind of semi-successful in proliferation. I mean, the thing about AI, and again, you know, almost infinitely more about it than I do, I'm sure, but uh, it's a, it's a singular moment. So there's a, yeah. there, the, the payoffs for winning that race to get to that spark of, uh, you know, that somehow that will then whoever gets to there first kind of wins the race. And to be fair, I think you you do a great job after you kind of talk about in the book the the benefits that kind of our, our current situation and what are the potential benefits. You you have a great chapter on the risks involved um, and some of the risk. And and I think you could do a good job of highlighting a lot of the potential downsides. I think my only and this is a, a sl it's not really a criticism. I would have liked to seen more of the speculation on the political and social side about mm -hmm. what this is going to do to our societies. Yeah. So let me, let me get, let's just give you an example. You talked about age and you talked about prolonging age and treating age as a, as a, as a, as a medical condition and, and something that can be solved. So you then mentioned the effects uh, on family run businesses and tenured professors forever using their old notes, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> term limits, a lifetime appointment, social safety nets, et cetera. And in a sense, and, and I don't mean this to sound uh, critical because I, I just thought, oh, you know, I wanted to hear your thoughts on something more. So mm -hmm. in the US, for example, we can't even, or uh, I'm an American, but I live in the UK for a long time. So the US can't even ensure people get basic care, basic right. health care at this point. Right. So it'd almost be inevitable that you would open up these kind of radical different lifespans across socioeconomic right. classes. Now we know there's already these lifespan differences, but the I think the potential for social unheaval, uh, upheaval and kind of political violence that comes from some people living twice, three times longer than other people. And that, let's say if we even get that right domestically, so let's say the political pressures come on and you know everybody in the US gets to live longer, then internationally you have a problem. I mean, we couldn't even manage to get COVID vaccinations to, right. to other nations when it was like 50 billion could have like, uh, anyway. So it just seems like these inevitable genetic divisions across these socioeconomic divides would create just this absolute perfect kind of storm of sociopolitical things that would lead to kind of some sort of revolution or uh, at least political violence. Do, do, do you see that? Or is that is that something that doesn't worry? We absolutely do. And I think that criticism is spot on. That risk chapter was originally four chapters. And, um, you know, the book was getting a little long. Uh, so we we cut that back and, and tried to weave some of that into the scenarios. But but you're right. Um, you know, I, again, I think back to 1990 and Dolly the Sheep, which some yeah. people may remember. And we yeah. it's in the book, too. Um, again, this was research that had been ongoing. It, it was part of a very long, like there were many experiments that came up before it. And when it was finally announced that a sheep had successfully been cloned, you know, there was this global outcry, um, and there were protests and there were, there was some violence that broke out. I mean, at some point, the, pre the then president of the United States, Bill Clinton, had to make a special press conference to, to re reassure people that demon spawn were not going to be, you know, roaming the streets that Halloween. It was terrifying to people. Yeah. And, and that was with the, a that was with a consequence that didn't have anything correct. to do with people. Right. Correct. That was a sheep. Yeah. OK. Um, and and and. Again, like the, the world collectively lost its mind. Now, in the years since, we've wound up with medicines, not you know scary, scary creatures. But but yeah, to your point, we're talking. We're we're now we're talking about humans. Mm -hmm. Um. So to me, it is inevitable because what's going to happen is it's not like there's going to be a singular day when suddenly the synthetic biology switch gets flipped on, yeah. and now there's anti-aging medications and different therapies. This is like this sort of slow boil. 
the, the, I think the frog in the boiling pot is analogous here. Um, you know, and, and the concern that I've got is that we're just not thinking through how some of these things would impact society. If we don't have, there was also a pretty big section on insurance that got truncated because again, we were a little off point, but in the U.S., if we don't get our insurance straightened out, this is going to break the mo- this is going to break actuarial models. Yeah. Okay. If people start living a hundred years, hundred twenty years, and you've got a cluster of people who have a very long lifespan, they age. You know, they get older without ever getting old. Yeah. And and don't need a lot of that care. On the one hand, that benefits certain models but you're going to wind up potentially with people who do not have access to this and you know their lifespans are are get yeah you know, they're going to be healthier but all they're going to live slightly longer but also have you know much longer term diabetes and other issues that just continue to go on for many 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 years more years yeah. than they do now those those financial models break if you're um in some cases like some investment uh structures benefit from much longer lifespans but others really don't. Any company that still has any type of pension that it's agreed to pay out mm. over time. I mean, so this is kind of what I'm talking about. We have these under, and that's just in the United States. We have these underlying challenges that have just never gotten addressed. And the models, the financial models that keep these things going are built on the assumption that human life isn't going to change very much, but it is going to change, which means the models break. Outside the U.S., like in Canada, I don't know how you manage not national health care when you've got ultra long lifespans on the horizon. You're going to wind up with doctor shortages and just all. Or India or Nigeria or, yeah, you totally. know, I mean, and then you right. uh, and and there's also interesting things, you know, if if you have. If you can live a very, very long time, but you can still die, right, you can still die from traumatic injury. Do people just become ultimately risk adverse? So are they, you know, what what happens to our 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 sense of what it means to have a worthwhile risk to take? Right. Um, and, and a risk to take for which people? So do we say, you know, I again, I'm less concerned about uh if if we go back to my uh, original question about the kind of sub subhuman, let's say, race. I'm less concerned necessarily about the super wealthy people that will live a long time, but one could say, well, look, Amy, you know, your lifespan's only like going to be 50 years. So if there's something right. dangerous to do, you should do it because I'm going to live for 500 years and right. it's 10 times more, uh, you know, uh, uh, costly for me if I lose my life. Right. So the, and, and building on that, it becomes a matter of perception, right? Mm. So if certain people are know that they're going to have what is today considered to be a normal, healthy lifespan, but relative to them, there's an entire different group of people who are living. Yeah. So, so the choices people make during their lifetimes start to change radically. And it's not like all of this happens outside the vacuum of, you know, again, social media, which I don't think goes away. No. Um, so some of these things become exacerbated. So uh, again, one, I, I, if we, it kind of ties into a little bit what we're talking about. You talked a little bit about it in the book, and this is the dynamic that I that I think it worries me in the sense of an arms race. So, if, for example, it, with genetic surgery we can enhance capabilities, um, and let's say that we have you you talk about enhanced soldiers, you know, stronger, quicker, more clever more strategic thinking, maybe we have enhanced scientists, and maybe we can't, as you said, biology is inherently, there's random elements, but we can shift the distribution. And then if we create enough embryos, we take 100 and we take the mm-hmm. two that are we think are furthest out on the distribution. So my, 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 my concern here is that what country, it only takes one country to start doing this, because right. then what, what country could make the choice not to create people that would be like this and fall behind in competition. It creates this incentive structure because it's kind of a a race. We reduce a lot of the careful thought, as you rightly say, that went into synthetic biology at the very beginning. A lot of these questions were really thoughtfully talked about. And now I get the feeling as it moves faster and faster, 
that kind of some of these careful thoughts and normative qualms about what we're doing because of the race kind of structure and because you get a kind of winner take all if one country starts to do this and others don't, that those more careful considerations are kind of being stripped away. Right. So let me caveat what I'm about to say with um, we are very far away from the type of genetic enhancement that would produce a super race. Yeah. Okay. Um, that being said, it's also in how we define super race. You could be argued, and I would argue today, that we already have a lot of that technology. Anybody who's the recipient of IVF, hmm. you know, you're you're going through some of the screening anyways, which means that, you know, to some degree, you're you have the potential to create better offspring than somebody is who is just getting pregnant naturally. And also because the people who can afford IVF yep. are probably in a different socioeconomic strata. Anyways. Um yeah, the last thing any of us needs is a biological arms race. And I have concerns um, that that is exactly the direction that we are headed in. Again, most of the applications we're going to see in this space in SynBio are very boring. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there are things like, you know, new ways to create raw chemicals for paints. I mean, th these are not super thrilling things. Yeah. But this stuff is on the on the farther horizon, and we don't seem to be feeling any sense of urgency to answer those questions right now. Yeah, and that's what I mean. I I was reading along your book, and I was going, okay, you know, I'm starting to get really frightened now. I've got, you know, I'm even more frightened than I was before. And I was looking forward to your to your recommendations about you know what what can we do. And you started the recommendations bit, and you said that you know in order for us to kind of go safely from here. Uh, you know, our our decisions would have to uh, kind of trust will have to stem from inclusivity, communication, accountability, scientific knowledge and understanding will be democratized. Religion will coexist with science and politics will clear a will, will, will clear a path for innovation. And then I said, I said, maybe you'd add maybe a circle of empathy will extend all humanity and the biosphere and global agreements with real enforcement mechanisms will come into fate, come into to place. And I and you said yourself at that point, I know this sounds like some utopian future, but that's what we need. And I thought, oh, no, because if that's our only way out of this kind of, you know, this trip, I, I, I thought, oh, no, what what are we? Are you saying that this is inevitable, these problematic Kind of um, yes, I I do think that the problems are inevitable. Now we we are pretty prescriptive in in ways to mitigate some of that risk. Um, we we have several recommendations. One is to ban something called gain of function research. Uh, so this is when scientists intentionally mutate um, things to see how bad they could possibly get. Now, in the before times, long ago, when we did not have computers, you know, there wasn't, there weren't ways to uh, to do this computationally. Maybe that makes made sense. And the 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 goal was to study um, the evolution of viruses in particular, and to potentially see if there was a way to predict how they might mutate in the name of getting to an antiviral or something. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's 2022, and the the truth is that there's no reason to do that now. There's comp There are computational biologists. There are many. To Google has figured out, or DeepMind knows all the protein structures. Like there's, there's no reason for us to be doing, doing gain-of-function research, and yet we know it happens. So what would be the point now? Um, weapons. Yeah. <laughs> there's no other, like that is the only reason to do that type of research. And so we recommend banning it completely. And we're not the only ones recommending that. Um, Yes, theoretically, one person somewhere in a rogue lab could potentially still do game of function research. You know, um, somebody somewhere could also be inventing a new type of weapon that's even worse than a nuclear bomb, probably. I, you know, uh, but but there has to be a way to do that. That begins with um, treaties, enforcement, you know, really tightly controlling supplies, monitoring all all of those things. And then we have a few other recommendations. Yeah, no, I, I mean, the recommendations, uh, again, gain, uh, uh, you know, ban gain of function research. The thing I was thinking about when I read that is, you know, a lot of the book you spent telling us how 
how much more simple and relatively cheap all of this research is becoming because we now can go into kind of a, or there's being constructed a kind of um, hardware store of the kind of building blocks that we can do. Right. Um, you, you, you recommend a kind of Bretton Woods um, uh, international. Uh, and again, these recommendations are all super sensible. I, I guess my question is kind of, they require a level of cooperation and commitment internationally that we we have not been able to manage right. in any other field. So again, I think that the the incentive structure here is financial. It's yeah. economic, yeah. and that's that's the key difference. Okay. So um, when we talk about Bretton Woods, you know, the idea it would take a it's a little complicated, but it, so it would take a little long to explain the whole idea here. But it has to do with sharing resources, sharing data, having a common pool of inf information and things like that, um, and then making agreements on what to and, and not to do with it and having binding structures and, again, ways to enforce. Um, you, you tie this to economics, you know, uh, and again, you're looking at two global superpowers, the United States and China. Russia is also kind of sort of got its hands in this, but, you know, we've already seen um, the result of U.S. sanctions uh, on Russia and freezing yeah. accounts and and what you know in the wake of putin's invasion into ukraine some of the unintended consequences have been it's given fuel to, to china's desire to create a uh an alternative to the dollar uh globally mm. but we know that it worked so again i think that there are financial pressures that could be exerted that would make it uncomfortable enough for china or russia or also the united states to be in violation right yeah as as my grandmother used to say, from from your lips to the ears of God, right? I yeah. I, I hope that 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 happens. Look, I, I, I'm I'm we're starting around out of time. I just want to raise one other thing. Um, do you know Nick Bostrom's work on the vulnerable world hypothesis? I imagine you do. Yeah. Yeah. So for those who don't know it, he asks he he does a kind of mental experiment, and he says that you know innovations are like drawing balls out of a bag. And he says, you can imagine three different colors in the bag, you know, white, gray, and black. And white are unambiguously good. Gray are kind of, they could be good and bad. And black are existential threats. Um, and he says that through time, we've gone to the bag more and more and more. And now we're going all the time. So, you know, agriculture comes along. It's one ball out of the bag. You might say it's a little bit gray, but maybe mostly white, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what's interesting about it is it's an interesting way of thinking or challenging the kind of default position that that innovation is kind of by definition worth pursuing. And I think of synthetic uh, biology in a sense that we we have all these real and often really heartbreaking problems and outcomes we'd love to avoid or fix, right? You share in your book your own experience in a really moving way about, you know, struggle to have children. We have horrible genetic diseases, we have aging, we have climate change, we have pollution, we have decreasing biodiversity, horrible outcomes in, at, at individual and collective level, and we all want to do something about it. But it kind of, I, I sometimes, I, th I think a lot of the work in the field is a little bit techno-utopia of kind of flavor, I suppose, uh, in, in this idea that a lot of tech in the tech world, and, and you know it much better than I do, but there seems to be kind of no technology that that somebody goes, oh, we better not do this. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I it, let me let me let me let me put it like this way. Let's say that, for example, there's this great new technology that comes along and allows people to develop out of stuff they can buy in the hardware store their own small nuclear reactors in their homes. Mm -hmm. And that the material would be easy to get to, and this will give people free, that make them free of all energy constraints. It would solve our climate change problem. It'd solve all these problems. It also means that anyone who wants to can create a nuclear bomb. And we should embrace and encourage the technology. But it, so sometimes I feel like people say, if we use this analogy, look, this is a great technology. We should embrace and encourage it. But we really need rules in place to avoid some crazy person blowing up the world. But I kind of then get to the point, well, yeah, that's true, but we don't have those tools. Mm -hmm. And so once that's released into our kind of world, is there any way off the train? And are the outcomes so bad that we just kind of have to ride the train to the end? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, a fork 
that you might eat your breakfast with is a deadly weapon if I stab you in the neck in the neck yeah. with it. Yeah. Right. And it's actually in that case not the fork that's the problem. It's the idea of the fork being repurposed as a weapon. Right. Once that idea exists, it's very hard to kill an idea, which means that that could perpetuate, and you could have a planet full of people who suddenly decided to kill each other in the neck with forks. Now that seems improbable, but again, I think this is analogous to the the way that we think about new ideas and technology and innovation and outcomes. Um, synthetic biology is a new technology and the risks are truly significant, okay? However, um, we, we have create, humans have created problems um, that are just not gonna go away. We have existential threats. Hmm. Uh, getting in a rocket ship to Mars, as much as Elon Musk might want us to do that, is not gonna solve the problem. Not scale. gonna solve the problem, no. Okay. Um, like, likewise, uh, getting all of the countries of the world together for a COP, you know, the, the, the next big summit is not gonna result in real time in a type of stringent action that will truly change things for one good reason. Uh, two of the biggest polluters, China and India's economies, still very much rely on the things that pollute. And it's not like we're giving, it's not like the whole planet's like, here's a whole bunch of resources to help you not do that anymore. So we need to have creative alternatives here. Um, we focused a lot of our conversation on humans. There are, there, there are so many other things that this technology brings, like, again, options when it, new hmm. optionality, right? When it comes to mitigating CO2, viewing CO2 as a feedstock yeah. rather than a problem, right? So there are lots and lots and lots of things here that we're going to need to to help us survive, which is really true of any industry. The risks, however, as we've talked about, are significant. So I guess what we're saying is, you know, innovation for innovation's sake or technology for technology's sake is never a great idea. I've never in my life been called, I, I, most people who know me pretty well and who have read what I've written would say that I, I tend to lean dystopian pretty significantly. <laughs> this is the most optimistic thing I've ever written in my life. Um, I don't feel optimistic uh, or pessimistic about the future of anything, of any technology. And that's right. because I don't believe that the future is predetermined. I'm not pleased with the direction that things are headed in right now, mm. but I believe that we can intervene and make wise choices. The whole point of the book is to position not just politicians or scientists, but everyday people to be more informed about a topic that will be, you know, 10 years from now, people are going to be talking about synthetic biology the way that they're talking about artificial intelligence today, which yeah. is to say, everybody's going to have an opinion on it. Yeah. Very few people will know what, well, very few people's opinions will actually matter. Um, there are going to be business decisions that are being made uh, for better or worse. And we're all going to be arguing about like what's best for the public good. Um, I want us to have that conversation now. Yeah. And I want that conversation to be informed. And I want us to be pragmatic when we're talking about what's next. Um, you know, I think Nick's, um, Nick's analogy is useful, but I also think it's, it's not super useful for us to constrain ourselves as we're thinking about what might be next. Um, so, you know, this is the, there's no neat and tidy answer here. This is a complex area that involves a planet. It's a planetary scale issue um, with, with regulations and IP and rules and policies that are all in conflict people who have different ideas, um, investors who have different desires. You know, I mean, th this is a hard one. So the purposes of this book is to get us talking reasonable. Like we know what we, we can easily imagine the obvious risks, you know, superhuman race or a robot class of humans. I'm much more concerned about the basic building blocks and getting that stuff wrong, yeah. which is what's happening now. What worries me is somebody with a 3D printer who can design a virus and design a virus. I mean, honestly, though, the there the the actual people who could do that now. I'm not saying they can't do that in a few years, but the number of people who could do that now is is slight. 
Um, and to me, that's a much lower probability event. That, that's analogous to somebody like everybody knows what a deep fake is. The like you have to have a significant amount of technical knowledge to create something that that is believable enough. Now, there's plenty of examples of it, so obviously it's happening. But you know, it it would be hard for somebody like it'd be hard for somebody to get to have enough knowledge to go through the process of getting all of the reagents and everything else you have to get and be registered with a lab to like do what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, long may it stay that way. That's yeah. that would be yeah. that would be my hope for everybody. That's a I think that's a great great place to to wrap it up. So, uh, on a, on a little note of optimism, I hope. So, last question and then we'll get you out of here. I always ask, you know, what's one book or play or film or fiction or non-fiction that you'd recommend maybe if listeners want to learn more about some of the ideas and controversies or risks and promises that we've, we've been talking about here today. Yeah. So if you have not read brave new world, now is the time to do that. It's still very, very relevant. Sadly. Um, I would say the movie Gattaca um, has, again, it's, it's going to look a little dated because I think it was made in the nineties, but I think it's still pretty, pretty relevant. There's a series on Apple TV that is phenomenal called Severance um, that I can't tell you anything at all about because it will spoil it. So, okay. but, but there are some themes that are, there's some and synthetic biology stuff that happens that, that is relevant, although it's going to, it takes a while to, to get there. Um, there's a great uh, show on Amazon called The Boys, which is hyper violent and definitely not safe for work or children. Um, but the way that the super, these, this is like what happens if superheroes weren't, were just out for themselves and it, everything was corporatized. I think that's an awesome metaphor for one potential future we might be looking at, especially related to the conversation we just had. Yeah. Um, it's very good. Super, super, super bloody and violent though. So, okay. so be careful. A warning um, on that one. Yeah. Anyways. Well, I definitely say, uh, I'd, I'd. You know, those sound great. Brave New World, I think everybody should read. It's uh, it, the prescience in the author there is absolutely amazing. Yeah. So, Amy, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to Trium Connects, a podcast for the Trium community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Trium Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best. <laughs>